You're listening to the Talented Others Podcast, a podcast dedicated to shedding light on some of the most talented people in advertising. Not the madmen, the others, the talented others. Welcome to the Talented Others Podcast. Today's guest literally journeyed from the cotton fields of Mississippi to an award-winning career in advertising as an executive producer. And besides being a super producer, he's also the person I call dad. So, dude, welcome to the show. Thank you. So so give us a little bit, just a, a, a highlight of your career, where you've been, where you've worked, um, you know, those kinds of things. Okay. Um, got started in the business uh, 1970, actually, um, after my junior year of college at Mississippi Valley State University, uh, little school in Mississippi, in the Mississippi Delta. Uh, I was um, into, came into St. Louis where I had worked the previous two summers looking for summer work and happened to see an ad um, for a job at an ad agency. And I went in and applied, um, had an interview in a week, and a week later I was starting my first day. Uh, I was um, hired in the audio-visual department, is what it was called at the time, and my primary responsibilities were uh, projectionists because uh, they were showing the work in those days on 16 and 35 millimeter film. But because it was the studio, they did also animatics or test commercials, and, and at, in those days, everything was pretty extensively pre-tested. So you animatic pretty much every spot before it actually got shot and tested it. And then, you know, depending on what the consumers said, it would or would not be produced. So I got a lot of, you know, hands-on experience with um, audio recording, had learned how to operate a camera, shot, you know, uh, artwork, and put it to tracks to create, you know, uh, little test commercials. And so after about uh, several months of that, you know, during the summer, I was totally planning on going back to finish my senior year and got summoned to the office of the executive creative director. The audiovisual department was attached to the creative department. So he essentially had... Um, you know, kind of gotten good feedback and wanted to make me an offer to to take uh, to stay on on a permanent basis. At that point, you know, it was quite a dilemma because I had always, you know, uh, planned to go on to uh, Ole Miss Law School and pursue a law degree. But at the same time, you know, in weighing those options. You know, the one seemed a little pie in the sky and the other seemed a bit like a realistic goal. And I had also learned over the course of those several months that I had a pretty creative mind. I'd always thought it, but I'd actually proved it to myself by virtue of some of the things that I was doing. You know, in working very closely with writers, art directors, and producers, I had, you know 
just sort of weighed in with my thinking and my ideas and my opinions and had them pretty well received. So I had the confidence that if I stayed, I could I could make a go of an ad career. And so that's kind of what I did. And this is DMBNB in St. Louis, right? This is Darcy Advertising in St. Louis. It was before, it was before the whole. OK. Yes. And for people who don't know, give an idea of who the main clients were at that time. We had a very impressive uh, listing of clients, uh, including Anheuser-Busch and several of their brands, including Budweiser, Michelob, Michelob Light. And eventually they added uh, a brand called Natural Light. But we, that was our primary um, you know, client, but we also had SBC Communications, which later became AT&T, a lot of the Ralston Farina business, um, Farina Variety Menu, which was a cat food, uh, Loving Spoonfuls, which was a cat food, and a dog food account that kind of escapes my my memory. Uh, In addition, we had some ConAgra business, uh, Shelter Insurance, uh, the St. Louis Cardinals, uh, and the Regional Commerce and Growth Association of St. Louis, the RCGA. Uh, so just to name a few. Now, during that time, I'm assuming that, you know, there weren't very many brothers in the ad game. Or, or you know, when you went to work on a daily basis, you weren't bumping into a lot of other black men or minorities um, within your department or within the agency even. I believe at the time there was a black woman in media, there was um, a black woman in research, and the three brothers down in the mailroom. So I would go down there and get my coffee and, you know, have my little sort of coffee clutch to uh, stay in touch with the black experience. And the rest of the time it was, uh, it was Lily White. So. How did, how did that dynamic kind of change you, you know? How, how did you get used to separating work and, you know, your, your social experiences? Well, it was a full-time job, just kind of understanding uh, the language of white people. I had come from a farm in Mississippi, went to totally segregated grade school, totally segregated um, high school, and in fact, my college, my three years of college experience was in a totally segregated environment. So, and literally was uh, thrown into a sea of whites and, you know, um, had to kind of adapt because, you know, in that environment, they didn't need to understand my culture too well. I had to kind of understand theirs. So, you know, when I say communication, I mean, you know, I, I shouldn't attribute, you know, a lot of it to uh, to the racial think component. It was, I think, ad speak. You know, I had to learn the advertising language <clears throat> that what was said wasn't always meant in the way it was 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 presented. And, you know, that was a whole language, an advertising language that I had to learn in addition to, you know, the cultural thing. That narrative seems to continue to play out, um, except now, you know, it's always about urban versus, you know. Um, There's always uh, different speak, different ways 
Exactly. Aren't socially um, popular to say, uh, so you just kind of you put it in a different kind of speak. You know, you make it urban about urban versus you know in the in the ad world, you make it all about the consumer. You know, we want to reach this segment of the audience, so we got to speak with this kind of voice. You know, those kind of things, and that that is so overrated and so overstated. You, I remember when we were kids, we used to laugh, you know, if you got a business call at home because you'd be talking and then you take this business call and, and the code switching happened immediately. And we used to tease you about it. Um, what was it about those times that forced you to have to do that? And then how did you thrive despite that? Well, I mean, I, I think it's, um, it's, you, it's part of what that learning curve. You learn that um, the way you speak daily as, a, as an African-American man, especially in the 1970s, um, was not uh, looked upon, you know, with the acceptance that that was your culture. It was looked upon as it was some sort of liability, and it reflected poorly upon your education. In a lot of instances, and I think I attribute the fact that I um, that I was able to to read it and um, and respond in you know the way that I was to the fact that I had gotten a very very good education. Uh, the language was never a problem for me. I you know I, I I could always you know put the proper you know verb with the proper subject and those kind of things and. Uh, you know, and at 20 years old, you know, so, um, you know, that's, that I think is, you know, was kind of one of my, one of my, um, my strengths. I think, um, you know, I came into the game a lot later than you, but I've never had to code switch. And in fact, I actually believe that not code switching has maybe helped my career in other ways. But what would you tell the a lot of young people who I meet who they're trying to bridge that gap between being who they are and bringing something really authentic to the game with also trying to fit in? What 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 advice would you give them? In advertising, the most valuable thing you have to bring to anybody's table is yourself, your upbringing, who you are. I mean, while I understood code speak, I never let it compromise my soul. I never let it compromise who I was. I always stated my opinion uh, based on where I came from and what I believed and who I was. I never, ever tried to play the game. And I think that's the thing, the most important thing I would say to young people is that the best way to play the game is not to play the game. Just be yourself. Um, you know, do your homework, go to school on stuff before you speak, but tell it the way you see it and, and be true to that. And I think over the course of, of time, you know, your track record will be consistent and people will be able to uh, judge you by who you are, you know, and that what you say becomes a continuation of who you are. And there is no duplicity in that. There is nothing that can go back and be, you know, second-guessed about that. That's your track record. You were able to cut your uh, teeth on some really big clients at a time when clients were spending a lot of money 
Uh, tell us about the heyday of Budweiser and even the heyday of the agency you were at and kind of how you were rising um, within the organization. Well, you know, it, it was great to have big projects to work on later on, and it, and it gave me a chance to gain some, some great, you know, sort of global experience. I mean, I started out as an associate producer. My first project was an Anheuser-Busch project, corporate project. And essentially, the brewery had reached this milestone that no other brewery, you know, on the planet had reached, which was selling 50 million barrels of beer. And so I was uh, assigned as an associate producer to go out and produce a spot that was going to air one time on The Tonight Show. And the reason for The Tonight Show connection is that Ed McMahon was the Budweiser spokesperson, corporate spokesperson, and he sat, you know, on the couch next to Johnny Carson. Uh, the other spokespeople were Lou Rawls for Budweiser, uh, White Ashton for Bush, Norm Crosby for um, Natural Light, and um, John Forsyth for Michelob. So I had to go out and pull together a spot that's going to air one time on The Tonight Show, 60-second commercial, and uh, they had a $35,000 budget. I had to go out and work with all of these um, egomaniacal individuals and kind of pull that together. And it was baptism by fire. I mean, it was literally, you know, uh, a 20, I think at that time I was 25, 26-year-old producer trying to corral, you know, all these um, these uh, corporate sort of uh, spokespeople who were accomplished in many other areas. Of course, John Forsyth had been a very successful actor. Lou Ross, of course, was a very uh, successful singer. Uh, Hart Axton, a successful country singer. And uh, Norm Crosby was a very successful comedian at the time. So all these guys were, you know, bigger than life. And, um, you know, I think, um, the, the, make a long story short, the spot was extremely well received by the client, uh, played well on the Tonight Show, and uh, I was kind of off on a fast track. Cool. And, and then what other opportunities did that lead, lead to? Well, my next Budweiser commercial, which was, uh, you know, uh, a spot that had been written by that time. We had hired a young African-American writer, and um, he and I had kind of teamed up because I always had ideas. And, you know, I'd learned that you didn't, if you were a producer, you didn't offer up creative ideas. That was the fastest way to make yourself an enemy of the creative department. So you... You attach yourself to a writer and you give them ideas and opinions. And we work really well together because I had several years of experience on this young man. And so I could kind of guide his path a little bit. And we just had a great friendship and we clicked, you know, in terms of our creative, um, you know, take on stuff. So we, we had kind of worked on an idea and um, he presented it and it got sold through and I was assigned to produce it, and it, you know, it was a shoot in New York, 
uh, about a young African-American fireman, a fireman who uh, was a rookie, and he ends up doing something heroic, and, um, you know, they kind of all end up taking him to the bar for a beer. So, you know, it was a really uh, well-executed uh, spot, and it um, played extremely well in national media, and that was, I would say, really the spot that launched my career. So it sounds like, one, there was a black writer involved even back then, which was, you know, kind of kind of mind blowing. Um, there was a general market spot with a African-American actor, which is also pretty uh, revolutionary. Um, and yet it sounds like you didn't face the backlash of the notion of too black, which seems to pop up in our day and age and has popped up in my career. So uh, it was 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 Budweiser just a very unique client. Um, tell me about that a little bit. Well, the whole idea of making it real as opposed to too black. I think was that was a conversation we had to have because the executive creative director wanted us to go with a very safe um, white director who had done a lot of work and the agency had a track record with, which which is you know completely understandable. And um, my my writer partner and I had gone in and made a very strong case that because of the things that we wanted to do with the ad, we wanted to work not with that director, but with a, a, a fairly young African-American director at the time who had done you know, some award-winning uh, work um, on Coke and some other big clients. But we had to go and, and get the reel. We had to we look at the reel originally, and then we asked him, for other things that we knew he had done. And we literally put a special reel together that kind of addressed what we were looking to do with the spot. And so, you know, we had those conversations internally. Then we had them at the client. And so there were no real surprises at all. And as a matter of fact, we were getting pat on the backs for having delivered the things that we had, had promised that we, um, that we would get. So who was the director? The director was a gentleman by the name of uh, Bill Mason. So wait, Bill Mason is black too, right? Bill Mason was a black director. So we're talking about late 70s and we have a black director, a black producer, and a black agency writer. How come this story has never been told? Like we we get always get the feeling like we are, when I started, I, if I didn't know about you, you know, it was all it always felt like I was like one of the first, you know. You know, that's a very good question. I, and I, I mean, the, this this why didn't you know uh, about this sort of um, unusual situation? I don't know. That's a, that's a good question. I, I don't think um, advertising keeps very good history records. So, and I, I think one of the things that, that actually uh, was great about my experience in those early days was it was just, you know, there was no uh, grand expectations. There was no, you know, grand discovery. Uh, 
I mean, I, I kind of was doing what was expected of me and there weren't, you know, you know, huge platitudes when you did what you said you would. It was just, I think what it did, it, it was cementing my background. It was cementing my career even more than I realized because as I moved on, I did realize that other people were aware of some of that stuff, you know, um, so it, it, it was, um, you know, it was all just sort of circumstantial, um, given situations you were put in. Now that you guys feel like you were breaking ground. I mean, you, you obviously had to know that how rare that kind of a situation was. You know, I don't know whether we were too young to think in those terms of breaking ground and doing unusual things. I think we were just hell-bent on establishing our careers and uh, putting ourselves, you know, in a place to, to be successful in advertising. That's what we, we wanted to do. We had each kind of figured out that we could do it successfully. And, you know, I don't think there were any grander visions at that point. It was just, you take on anything they hand to you and you make it the best you could. And then you live to fight another day. And maybe the next time you make it even better because every time you do it, you more experience and you had something to build on. Cool. Um, you know, especially for minorities, I think one of the, the, the secrets of advertising is that it gives us access to people and places and, you know, scenarios that we would normally um, kind of enter. Could you tell me a little bit about what that was like for you to kind of go from, you know, rural Mississippi to suddenly being thrust into not only Hollywood, but black Hollywood? Well, I think that may have emerged as one of the biggest obstacles for me is, you know, you show up in, in, in Hollywood, you know, and you get invited to parties. And, you know, remember, the 80s were very, a very drug-infested culture. Um, and you were suddenly you know, uh, as you say, a country boy being put in a position where there are all these temptations. And you you really had to figure out early on that they could be entrapments and that you had to find a way to, um, to, to keep a distance. You couldn't wholesale refuse to go to parties. You couldn't wholesale refuse to hang out with people. But at the same time, that was, if you crossed a certain, you know, social um, bar, you could also be heaping destruction on yourself. So, yeah, that was very challenging, you know, to, to, to have that social uh, connection, but not let it, let it do you in. And I saw it do some people in, you know, I can't even tell you how many um, creatives and um, producers who literally flamed out, you know, because of drugs and various other things. You know, I, I had, I mean, I, I always had a very strong, you know, um, connection to church and family. And so there was a lot of 
you know, that made that made my, my uh, choices a lot easier. Made my knowledge of that process a lot um, more informed. Even today, you know, if I'm staying in a hotel out in L.A. for three or four weeks at a time, you know, um, I, I, I've heard the comments as I walk through, like, you know, people trying to figure out if I'm a rapper or if I'm a, you know, an athlete or something. So at that time, I'm sure there were even fewer blacks in a lot of those hotels. How did the celebrity, the black celebrities especially, how did they treat you? Did they did they treat you like a peer? Absolutely. I mean, I, that was one of the things I think made it so easy to get caught up. You know, you showed up at places that people were at. You were assume, assumed to be one of them. And, uh, you know, if you were staying at, uh, at hotels like, in those days, it was Le Parc, it was the Mondrian, uh, it was the St. James Club, and, um, and places like that, you know, if you were staying there, you were generally in the business, of, you know, whether it be, you know, a singer, a rapper, uh, an athlete, and, you know, I've been confused you know, as being a baseball player, an NBA player, you know, a singer. I mean, it, you know, just because you were there, you know, it's assumed that you are a part of that um, that crowd. So you, you 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 could very easily flow in and out of those communities at, at those times, especially African-American. I think it was easier, you know, if you were black to... Um, because nobody expected you to be there, and if you were there, it automatically came with a certain license. Right. Um, getting back to the business, um, so let's fast forward a little bit. You eventually left Darcy and took a job down at Tracy Lock in Dallas. Um, took on a little more responsibility. Uh, talk about, you know, your first big move. Yeah, um, you know, it, it came, I think, at the end of 1984. I was heavily recruited, and this was after winning several awards and, you know, I would say getting on a lot of people's radar screen. I remember that at the time that I, um, that I left the company, I had three offers. Uh, I had an offer in New York, I had an offer in Chicago, and I had an offer in Dallas. And I actually took the offer in Dallas, um, which was to come in uh, as uh, head of broadcast. And I was, I think, 33, 34 at the time. Um, so it was a big opportunity. It was a big risk. And I do remember that on, you know, when I went in and gave my notice to Darcy, they matched the offer. They they they, they called um, a meeting of the the board, and uh, they they got me the substantial increase. I mean, literally, it more than doubled my salary, and they matched it. But at the same time. Because I was the young producer, what they couldn't match was the opportunity to, you know, run the department, to, to um, you know, be in charge of the, the, um, the other producers, the business managers, the talent payment uh, people, 
the uh, tr the traffic department, all of which you know reported to the head of broadcast. And so I saw that as an opportunity. You know, I had come along as far as uh, my producer credits, and I wanted to to gain some man managerial experience, and this was an opportunity. But I I was very careful to thank you know the company for a monumental you know effort to try to keep me and i i stayed on good terms and i took a job uh at um an agency in dallas called tracy lock um as director of broadcast and vp so different clients i think you were working on frito-lay at the time as one of your bigger clients yeah they had they had a, it wasn't actually I don't think they get much bigger than Budweiser in those years, especially in terms of the amount of money they spent on production and the amount of money they spent on media. But Frito-Lay was a, a huge client. Uh, they also had some other great clients, Tabasco, Sauce. Um, there was um, uh, Hager's Flags, uh, Dillard's Department Store. Um, oh, Ben Hogan Golf. I actually got a chance to meet and, and work with uh, Ben Hogan, the late Ben Hogan. And um, Frito-Lay, Doritos, Tostitos, Lay's, Potato Chips. Uh, they had some work. Um, oh, there was another new product called Apple Chips that we launched. I actually worked on the project that launched uh, Apple Chips. Um, and then they had some PepsiCo business um, they did the, um, they had the food services group of Pepsi, which actually did, um, you know, business in, in the theaters and, uh, and different venues like that. So it was a little under the radar. It wasn't like broadcast advertising, but it was a lot of very interesting stuff you know, for, uh, that we did for Pepsi. Got you. So you, you, you learned, spent a few years uh, working on that, learned some things, and not long after, three years later, you were going back to St. Louis. Yeah, I mean, you can weigh in on this, but, uh, you know, my, my, my wife was never a Dallas person. I mean, I, I think the difference between Dallas and St. Louis, and I had great experiences in Dallas. I mean, I, I in no way... Would I ever want this to suggest that I, I mean, I was a star at the agency, uh, pretty much everything I touched turned to gold. I would say we, I, you know, we did some amazing work, but, you know, uh, my wife wasn't very happy. And I didn't think you guys, you and your sister were happy in Dallas until we got ready to move. And then all of a sudden... You guys maybe thought you wanted to stay, but I, I kind of felt like getting back to family. You know, I, I felt that I had really isolated the family and, um, you know, those holidays when we'd get together with cousins and uh, uncles and relatives, you know, um, I think we all missed that. So when the opportunity came to get back to Darcy, you know, as an executive producer, and not to run the department, but I was going to be heir apparent to the guy who was running the department. And Darcy, again, was a bigger agency than Tracy Locke uh, at the time. So, you know, that stuff was kind of understood. So, yeah, I took the 
took the opportunity to, to get back to St. Louis and get back to Roots. Advertising can be a very grueling industry. You work a lot of late nights, a lot of weekends, a lot of plans get canceled. I remember as a kid, I mean, you were gone, you know, you know, during like the height of your career, 200 days easy. I remember the, you know, father son banquet that I was kind of with other friends <laughs> or, um, you know, a lot of a lot of those moments. So talk a little bit about that for people who are considering advertising. Yeah. You know, people you, you, we all we see the awards, we see all the glory and all of that. But there is a sacrifice that comes with it. You know, for me, it comes under the heading of um, be careful what you wish for. Because I think, you know, all the young people, you know, out there in advertising who want to be successful, the more successful you are, the greater toll it takes on your personal life and your family life. And you really better have it together because the travel, you know, I've seen so many people over the years, uh, a lot of travel to end and, and, and divorces and, and um and break up a family because, you know, if you do it well, they're going to want you to keep doing it and doing it and doing it because it's it's all about, you know, track records with the client. You know, there's a point at which, you know, you can't afford to have a failure. And so the person who consistently goes and comes back with great stuff, award-winning stuff, stuff that the clients are happy with, stuff that the agency's happy with, those are the people that are going to get the money, but the responsibility, but the greater travel. And so it all kind of feeds on itself. And you got to be prepared that that's a, that's a price you end up having to pay. And again, that was one of the reasons I felt like having you guys back in St. Louis, where you had aunts and uncles to, you know, um, to surround you in my absence is gonna gonna help to keep you guys more on the straight and narrow. You know, being isolated as we were in Dallas when I was when I was gone, you know, I pretty much had, your mom had the sole responsibilities for everything. So uh, you you really have to think that stuff through career wise. So now let's talk about management and um, leadership uh, kind of graduating to being a little bit less involved in going out and producing all the commercials and more now you're becoming a mentor more of a boss um, was that an easy kind of transition for you well if, if it could be the way you described it that it, it became management and mentoring and less involved in going out producing, it would have been wonderful. The problem is, I've discovered when you're a really good producer, you're going to always have to produce. So what happens is you just take on those other things as part and parcel. So I produced as, as much when I was head of department as I had when I was a producer. But what I found myself having to do is come in on nights and weekends and do um, evaluations of employees, uh, to do a lot of the management things that were required of you. 
And so that is where you just, you, you really get pulled in different directions because you don't lose the primary responsibility produced. You gain the re additional responsibility to manage. And it's a, it's a doubling act. Got you. At, at the very end of your career, you uh, made the decision to move to Chicago and work at uh, Burrell Advertising, which is a multicultural. Your first time working at a multicultural, you know, a, a lot. A lot of my peers struggle with: Do I do I do I only do general market? Do I do I do multicultural? Can I do both? Give me your opinion about that kind of career path. Okay, I'll give you a little background first. Um, you know, I um, came to a point where uh, my agency, uh, Darcy, which had by that time become Darcy McManus and Macias, Darcy Macias, Benton and Bowl, you know, they had merged with Leo Burnett and several other agencies. And eventually, uh, you know, we were, we were looking to do an IPO, but a number of people, you know, decided to take the money. I think that was at a time when the stock market wasn't great. So they sold the company and they shut down our St. Louis operation. So for the next four or five years, I freelanced. And what I realized when I freelanced was that I was making the same money with so much less of the responsibility. And that was really truly how I planned to end my career. And uh, along came a very dear friend of mine who uh, I mentioned Roland, but Lewis Williams was also a guy uh, that I worked with uh, as an art director, a black art director on Budweiser. And Lewis had, had left Leo Burnett and gone to Burrell as the chief creative officer. And he called me up and he wanted me to join him. And um, it was a real tough call because... I didn't need the money, and I had had the responsibility, so there were no challenges there. The challenge, as he and I talked it through, became to um, have the opportunity to mentor and to uh, work with predominantly African Americans and a multicultural uh, agency. Now, to get back to your question, I don't believe that there is this, you're qualified to do general market advertising or you're qualified to do multicultural advertising. I think if you have um, God-given creative talent and you have the ability to concept and to think, um, the two are, you know, it, there is no, um, I mean, I didn't miss a beat when I went to um, to Burrell, and I didn't feel like I had to get up to speed on anything. Now, I guess you could make the argument that it might have been a little different if I had spent all my time breaking into a multicultural shop, and then I was moving on to a general market shop. But I think that would be what all the things that I previously talked about with, which is really understanding you know, the language and, uh, you know, the, the cultural difference, you know, uh, but I don't, I don't, I don't buy that, you know, 
because you're qualified to work at a Joe Market agency, you can't do multicultural or vice versa. Wow. Well, this has been a great talk. We're going to start wrapping up a little bit. But a couple of the hot topics right now, diversity and inclusion. Some people think it's just not getting any better. Some people don't don't really believe in it. You are somebody who literally grew up picking cotton <laughs> in Mississippi, and you were able to find a path into advertising. Feels like if you can, anybody can. So could you just give some advice to that, that next generation that thinks they want to enter but can't seem to find that, that clean path? They, they're reading all these conversations about, you know, nobody will hire, you know. What, what, what would you say to them? Well, I mean, to, to add to your setup line of, you know, coming from, you know, a farm environment of, of, of picking cotton and, and, and that whole thing. And, you know, I literally had to get in and learn that I had the instinct, creative instincts to do this work. So my point is, I think for somebody today, the path should be eminently clearer, you have a better concept of what to go to school to study. And you, you know, if you do that, you come in with that background. And I see no reason you shouldn't be able to bust those doors down. You know, a door opened for me, it was quite, you know, by accident that I ended up in advertising. Um, Didn't even have the knowledge that there were people making careers out of concepting ideas and, and doing uh, ads. I didn't even know that world existed. You know, there was no counseling when I graduated high school that you could go to a portfolio center or a school that to study design and advertising. I mean, you know, my counselors basically said the options you had was to teach if you're a really good student to study to study law and maybe become a lawyer, if you could make it, you know, and I mean, it was just the, the, the limitations were just so, so much greater than they are. So, yeah, I, I would say to a young person in a, who wants to be in advertising, if you put forth the effort and, and study you shouldn't wait for those doors to open. You should kick them open. Right. Wow. That's powerful. All right, dude. Appreciate the conversation. And I hope a lot of people tune in and check it out. All right, man. Thanks a lot. All right. Take care. You're listening to the Talented Others podcast.